with deep learning, what's interesting, I think, is that some of the older statistical methods, you come at a point where the more data you throw at it, you reach a plateau in terms of how much value you gain out of that data. You you reach a certain point where more data doesn't help in, in some of the older methods. But in the newer deep learning methods, some of them at least, the interesting characteristic is that the more data you throw at the more value you keep extracting out of that data. Welcome to the Esri and the Science of Wear podcast. I'm Amin Rama Shariki, Esri Urban Analytics Lead, and I'll be your host for today. You just heard artificial intelligence and machine learning engineer Alberto Nieto touch on the importance of adopting cutting-edge technologies to capitalize on the full value of all the data being collected today. Today, the most competitive businesses and governments combine location technology with machine learning to realize the full benefits for operations, growth, and efficiency. Here, Esri CMO Mariana Cantor investigate the disruptive influence of artificial intelligence, machine learning, and location intelligence in part one of this special two-part episode. Alberto, hello, and thank you for being here. Certainly, it's great to be here. Thank you again. You have deep experience building and applying artificial intelligence and machine learning. Considering that these technologies are increasingly applied in fields ranging from retail to healthcare to manufacturing and all across government, we're talking to the right guy. So I guess my first question would be, could you begin by demystifying these technologies for us? So I think the most effective way I've found to to start tackling these concepts is to break it down into just three terms, artificial intelligence, machine learning, and deep learning. So at the broadest level, you have artificial intelligence. And the first caveat is that there's no consensus definition. Depending on who you ask, you'll get a different terminology and different definition. But the one that I prescribe to typically uh, corresponds to having computers or machines do tasks that, that require some level of human intelligence. And think of Alexa and how you can generally speak to it like a person and it responds to you like a person does. So then at the subset level, you have machine learning, which makes this possible. It's a type of engine that can make Alexa possible. And it refers to how you can have data-driven algorithms or techniques that learn from data to get at information that can help you with a specific goal. So when you speak to Alexa, there's a machine learning algorithm behind the scenes working to process your speech and and get at the right information. And then at the deepest level, you have... uh, a specific concept that has become really popular in recent years, perhaps in the past four or five years, and that refers to deep learning. So with deep learning, you have loosely based code structures that that represent how the human brain is adaptive. So it's about being adaptive with different inputs. Uh, So when I speak, the way my speech patterns, my intonation, my accent, the way I probably will butcher the English language, that generally doesn't get in the way of of you understanding me, I hope. (laughs) So, and that's because your your brain is very adaptive at at understanding the meaning from my sentences in spite of, of the different ways I state different things. And more and more code structures are beginning to benefit from that type of adaptability. 
and and you can imagine how that could be important to business cases when you're trying to sell Amazon Echoes not just to a specific subset of the population that speaks a certain way or has a specific accent, but to anyone that could perceive of speaking to an Amazon Echo. Right. It, it's interesting. I was reading on this topic to prepare for this podcast, and I've seen some interesting characterizations of the technology, AI in particular. Some claim that it's more data-driven versus rules-based. Others claim that it's rules-based versus data-driven. Then there is the question of, is it mimicking human intelligence, or are we departing completely from the way that the human brain operates and creating a whole new intelligence paradigm. So just going back a little bit on what it is again and getting past the jargon out there, can you just again unpack a little bit of that for us? Sure. Yeah, there there are some claims that AI and machine learning equate to complete automation of analysis, of removal of the human or, or the analyst. And uh, I frankly couldn't disagree more. In fact, uh, what I've found in, in my experience with it is that it actually requires greater interactions by the analysts and, and makes domain expertise more important than ever. And I believe the, the reasoning behind that claim is because of how some of the deep learning algorithms work, how some of the machine learning algorithms work. The the operation in principle uses self-improvement, right? So you you have code that operates on a set of data and as it starts operating, it determines what's an improved manner of operating and then continuous learning then yields greater results. And that's very beneficial, but that doesn't equate to removal of the person at the wheel. In fact, uh, an example that I often cite now that is very intriguing is, is the concept of airline prices. In this principle, you can consider how airline prices are determined by machine learning algorithms through a number of factors relating to weather, relating to demand, supply, etc. And in the case of an emergency situation, you can have, for instance, Hurricane Irma coming through the nation, through Florida. And the algorithms left on their own would determine that supply is greater than ever and would raise the prices to an unattainable degree and, and make the situation much tougher for people involved. But analysts still have to be involved in the equation to be able to discern what's correct and what's wrong. And in that case, uh, a human analyst, the, the focus of their attention doesn't shift entirely from the problem. It actually expands greatly, and the implications of their work become greater in nature. So basically, the human is integral to interpreting the results very frequently in the context of our real-world scenarios. And also, I suspect they're writing the code, too. Precisely, and and validating the code. It's not a, a fire and forget solution. The it's for one, it's been something that has been working for some time. It's not a it's not precisely a new set of techniques. It's these are extensions of techniques that have been applied for a long time, especially in the GIS world. And analysts have long known that they have to validate the outputs in a certain way, and and the expansion of capabilities just means that the their work increases to a great degree. Can you quickly define GIS for us? So GIS stands for Geographic Information Systems. And broadly speaking, it can relate to the concept of location intelligence, or at least some of my favorite concepts with it. 
And to define location intelligence, we can begin by starting with intelligence itself. And one way to to start defining how intelligence works has to do with data and how we people perceive data through our eyes, through our ears, through the different sensors we have. And intelligence can, in some ways, be related to how we can detect patterns in all these data sets and and all the data we perceive in the world and find the patterns that, when we apply the correct skills, result in some specific goal being met. So one interesting aspect of location intelligence is is how we can use location to supplement that the the success rate at which we can achieve our goals. I love to bring my dog into into the picture as an example. So my dog has location intelligence. Anytime I go into the kitchen, he knows that there's a high probability that I'll get a treat and give it to him. So just because he sees me walk into the kitchen, he's able to determine a series of decisions that can land him at at getting this treat. Taking it one level higher, I have location intelligence at the individual level. So when I commute to work, there's a series of decisions I can make based on on traffic patterns, on information I receive from my phone or from the news or from a, a series of other inputs. And that can guide the decisions I make on my way to work to optimize some type of goal. And then broader yet is the organizational level. When you talk about organizations and and by that same example, something like the postal service can drive the the routing efficiency of all their trucks that deliver mail on any given day by expanding location intelligence and applying it to every decision they can make. Yeah, it's very interesting. These digital realities are all grounded in some physical manifestation, our physical world, and that everyone and everything has a physical presence and location. Can you connect for us the location intelligence and the artificial intelligence or machine learning concepts and how they work together? Certainly. uh, A lot of organizations have spent some amount of time, perhaps years, investing in new data sources. And we're at the point where a lot of organizations have a lot of data and not enough analysts to perceive information from this data to extract actionable information. So some of the the capabilities of machine learning and artificial intelligence can supplement in this manner. And again, in, in that respect, it's not a full replacement of the analyst, but it's more of an expansion of options to the analyst. Instead of simply being able to have a few different options to to perceive patterns in data, maybe they have additional computing power and additional data sets, and the combination of those two can yield uh, some new capabilities for the organization. I know that you talk about three types of problems that location intelligence plus machine learning can solve, and specifically might get a little bit technical, but it's interesting for us to understand classification, clustering, and prediction. So could you walk us through real-life examples of each of these? Sure. We've been discussing how you can actually start applying these concepts to solve problems. And generally speaking, you can consider three types of categories, as you mentioned, uh, classification, prediction, and clustering. And with classification, it's it's a the process of deciding to which category an object or an observation can be assigned based on known data or a training data set. 
So one use case that we can consider is with emergency management. If you're trying to classify impervious surfaces that can help effectively prepare for storm and flooding events, uh, you can use high-resolution imagery and run classification algorithms to determine where those locations are and therefore determine if you have uh, some correct safety measures in place. Now with the second one prediction, that's perhaps the most uh, popular example of, of applications of machine learning and deep learning. Uh, simply put, it's, it's how you can use known data to estimate the unknown or to fill gaps in the known. Um, some examples that are more relevant in the geospatial world perhaps deal with climatology and meteorology. Uh, one example I can cite is how you can predict impacts of climate change on local temperature using global climate model data. There's also examples that examine the probabilities of patronage for a given location if you place a branch. And in this case, uh, the difficulty with prediction is that as it turns out, predicting is very difficult. <laughs> so some of some word of caution there is as organizations start exploring the applications of prediction, they need to be aware of the domain problem first. They need to understand how the solution actually tells them new information that more traditional methods don't. And with that respect, the third uh, category, clustering, I believe is fascinating and, and can help. It's perhaps the one that I'm most intrigued by. So with clustering, you have what can be categorized as a grouping of observations based on similarities of values or locations. Um, one example that we've been working on is with uh, traffic safety. So with nearly 35,000 fatal accidents in the United States over the past year, can we detect the locations that a transportation agency can focus on over the next year due to the presence of a systemic problem? And that in itself is not likely the final answer to that safety problem, to that traffic safety problem, but it's it's an exploration tool. It's to get to perhaps the other two types of, of problem-solving exercises that you can apply machine learning algorithms to. Alberto, when it comes to analyzing imagery, especially in real time, machine learning seems to provide a significant advantage. Can you explain why that is and how it works? There's been a lot of work over the past few decades, at least, working with satellite imagery, with aerial photography. And over the time, we've refined the approaches we've, we've taken to, to classify different types of land cover and objects and imagery. So there's a level of experience that can be applied in, in this case. More interestingly and, and recently, the deep learning algorithms can be applied to supplement how this work has been performed. So in the case of a deep learning algorithm, we can essentially label known locations of some type of object and imagery that we want to find, teach a, a a type of deep learning model called a neural network to to get very good at, at detecting in imagery where these objects reside and then supplement that with some of the traditional work and, and start to research what approaches work, what approaches yield greater results. So if I can expand on that, I can cite two examples, at least, maybe three. One example is the detection of a specific type of farm and these are farms called concentrated animal feeding operations. And these farms can be categorized by their architecture, by their relative location in terms of 
of the presence of a, of a swine pit or a specific type of road leading up to these farms. So you can generally perceive patterns from imagery in this case. And there's a number of ways to, to build a classification solution here. But one example of work we've done here is to train a, a, what's called a neural network to detect these types of farms using satellite imagery. And what that can lead is to, the, to a data set of where these locations reside at the national level. If we do this appropriately enough and we build enough representative examples of what these locations look like from satellite imagery, then, then your solution can, can be used in other locations. The second example deals with traffic detection from webcams that are positioned at intersections. So in this problem space of, of traffic safety, there's some work being done at state departments of transportation and even at the federal level where we can use uh, traffic feeds to essentially label whether a specific type of vehicle is crossing an intersection and not just a specific type of vehicle, but how many. And traditionally, you, you have traffic counters that can be used to to create data sets of, of daily traffic use. But in this case, a supplemental solution where a machine learning algorithm can discern between a truck and a bus or between cars and pedestrians uh, is very interesting because that not only provides a new data source, but expands what's possible. Consider, for instance, if a machine learning solution can detect the presence of a crash. If we can train enough imagery that represents different scenarios where a vehicle hit another vehicle or where some type of police activity signifies that there's a, a an incident at some intersection. That information can be connected in real time to emergency management agencies, to police departments, to hospitals, and, and more reactive processes can then take place. You mentioned several times that the generation of big data and the availability of some massive computing power contributes to this resurgence in recent years. Can you talk about that and what you see going forward with technology advancing so quickly in this area? Sure. Yeah, the the common thinking resides that the mixture of big data and the availability of massive computing power is the main impetus behind this recent push with AI and, and machine learning. Uh, there's uh, a gentleman named Andrew Ng, the founder of Coursera, and I believe he worked at Baidu. And he cited this example of, of a machine learning model being analogous to the launch of a rocket. And to do that, you need a lot of fuel and you need a massive engine, a very large engine. Without one or the other, you really cannot launch this rocket into orbit. In some aspects, machine learning can be similar. It's not a characteristic of all solutions. Not every machine learning solution requires big data. But at least in, in this recent impetus, the, the explosion of activity, I think, can be characterized by having organizations that are able to capture more data than ever and organize it and mix that with algorithms that leverage massive computing power. Specifically with deep learning, what What's interesting, I think, is that some of the older statistical methods, you come at a point where the more data you throw at it, the 
you reach a plateau in terms of how much value you gain out of that data. You you reach a certain point where more data doesn't help in, in some of the older methods. But in the newer deep learning methods, some of them at least, uh, the interesting characteristic is that the more data you throw at, the more value you keep extracting out of that data. So we haven't yet reached a theoretical plateau in terms of how much value can be gained in certain domains. It's not a characteristic of every solution, but this is nonetheless interesting. Not too long ago, we were in the position where we had too much data and the technology couldn't really grapple with it. What is happening now that it's almost limitless on how much value data can provide? Certainly, some of the algorithms that are able to work on on your input data, particularly some concepts like neural networks and, and some of the deep learning concepts, are again fascinating because they're able to continue benefiting from additional data input. Um, and that's not to say that in the past that wasn't always the case, but it's more obvious now that the more data you have in certain cases, the more you benefit. And how much data you throw at it generally guides how effective it is. Thank you so much for your time. It was a pleasure having you. Thank you very much. It was great being here. Thanks for listening to the Esri and the Science of Wear podcast. Stay tuned for part two of this illuminating discussion with Esri Solutions engineer Alberto Nieto about three technologies that are working together to accelerate deep learning and deliver value for the most innovation-driven organizations in business and government. To learn more about Esri's point of view on other transformative technology trends like digital transformation and the Internet of Things, visit esri.com forward slash where and esri.com forward slash IOT. 